proud to say that this episode is brought to you by Interdubs, the standard for online work-in-progress posting. Go and visit interdubs.com and request a trial for your company. You're listening to The RC, your guide to digital cinema, filmmaking, and cutting-edge imaging. Hi, and welcome to this week's RC podcast covering digital cinematography. This week we're going to be covering the FS700 and the 5D Mark III, which we've been testing. We have in the guest chair Tom Gleason sitting in for Jason Wingrove, who is off on assignment this week. This is, uh, of course, the uh, FX Guide's RC podcast. It's our role here at the RC to uh, mine the news, filter the blogs, go through everything that uh, we can, maybe go down some rat holes because this is the camera tech that we love, we obsess about, and we talk about, and we love playing with. And for this week's conversation, as I say, I have Tom Gleason sitting in the, uh, in the pod chair with me. Tom, how are you? Oh, very good. Thank you, Michael. So uh, we have been playing a lot with stuff, and uh, we're going to basically, I guess, have a bit of a special app where I get to sort of quiz you about things. Tom, I'm going to run through a bit of your background before we go into the cameras this week, just for people that don't know you. Now, you and I have shot together many, many times. You're a, um, uh, a recognized cinematographer in a lot of areas. What would you say is sort of your, your primary area that you like to uh, shoot in? Oh, it's strange you say that. I, 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 I tend not to specialise. Um, at the moment, um, I'm probably making most of my living from shooting TV commercials, um, but I'm quite happy to go back um, for, for the right subject and shoot documentaries, uh, and, um, and occasionally I'm shooting drama. And you actually worked on Survivor, which is one of my favourite yeah. things. In fact, two seasons you were – what was your I role there? Did, I did three seasons, seasons for right? CBS. And so, uh, obviously, you're based now here in Sydney, and you've shot a bunch of stuff with us, which has been uh, terrific. We really appreciate it. Most particularly in the short term, you've been doing a course with us at FX PhD, where we've been looking at uh, camera tech. And it's some of that camera tech that I thought it'd be fun to have a chat to you about. But before we go any further, let's comment on the incredibly interesting thing you have um, sitting in your lap, which is a, uh, a new toy. Uh, yes, it's the new Sony FS700. Um, which certainly wouldn't win any beauty prizes. It's a peculiarly unattractive-looking camera, but it's also a very exciting camera. This is a camera that really has the form factor of a camcorder, yet it's capable of uh, 960 frames a second. Yeah, but that's 960 frames a second with some compromises. Yes, um, uh, up to 480 frames. Um, it's full frame, which is still an incredibly impressive figure for, a, um, uh, I think, a $10,000 retail camera. Um, but I think past that point, it seems to window the frame. Um, we'll do some further tests to work out exactly how much, but it looks about 50% odd. But um, what I'm getting out of it is, in fact, still a 1920 by 1080 signal. Yes, but I, I yes, um, but it's window, windowing the sensor and then scaling that up, I assume. Yeah. So, for example, when I was doing some tests with it yesterday, I've done some really great tests we'll talk about in a second, um, you know, it just looks, uh, especially in low light conditions, as we were doing, just when we were mocking around with the menus yesterday, you got an image that uh, was degraded by the fact that it had been blown up. Now, so it's not its not sort of shooting raw. Um, it's not a miracle of... No. But it's pretty impressive for oh, 10000 bucks. It, it is a camcorder. Um, um, although it, having in its, in its defence, um, it's got an interchangeable lens um, and is a 35mm size, I think CMOS. I should check that. Um, uh, size sensor. Um, I think at the moment it's coming with a Sony E-mount and the supplied lens, Sony lens, um, which, to be frank, looks pretty 
average an 18 to 200 millimetre zoom. Um, uh, we've just shot tests this morning, so um, we'll speak more authoritatively uh, later. Um, but again, it's sort of, what can you say, when, you, when you're paying $10,000 for a camera with the lens and a viewfinder uh, and everything else, so, you know, it'll shoot out of the box, um, you know, there's compromises involved. I think one of the interesting things about it is that it's described as being 4K capable. Uh, software for that is coming uh, with a firmware update sort of later on, sometime in the first 12 months, I'm led to understand. But this this has all the hallmarks of a Sony camera. Like, it has built-in ND filters, doesn't it? Like yes, which are, and is probably the best things video cameras ever did. Um, um, hint, hint, red. Um, uh, they're extremely handy. You know it's going to be high quality. You can do it in seconds. Um, sometimes lighting conditions are changing really fast. It's such... It seems such so old-fashioned and pain in the ass now to be pulling NDs in and out of a map box, um, especially when things are under pressure. And um, these cameras... Um, are coming faster and faster. So the, the need yeah. for ND is coming larger and larger. So this basically replaces the FS100. And we're holding that one now. It's meant to not sort of hit the markets until June. And I understand that Sony's actually going to come up with their own separate off-camera recorder, which is one of the things that's key in its 4K strategy. Um, because let's discuss that. You've been shooting with it today. Now, we've some awesome fun shooting well, you know, describe why we're, we're a bit <laughs> well, damp. I mean, it was a simple shoot, but we had a friend of ours who's an archer, and we asked him to come come, come down, and he's got this wonderful compound um, bow, which is capable of um, um, shooting an arrow incredibly quickly. And so we got we're some shots of that. About, and, we're um, talking about rifle speeds. I mean, this is not uh, think, this is not your wooden bow that bends for yeah, Robin Hood saying stuff. He's had it clocked at 225 feet per second. So it's not much chance that you'd be ducking that if it was coming your yeah, way. It's ballistics level. And the thing about it is we decided to sensibly use it. Oh, and break things. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so um, because we're at the local park, there was a limit to what we could break. Um, but we um, simply um, put that arrow through some soft drink cans. So so let's explain that. So you've got this, uh, obviously, set up where you don't want to be at the camera. Because dead seriously, like, I mean, if it had deflected off the can, it would be like getting a small rifle bullet. Oh, so absolutely. Anything, anything like this, you, you really, I mean, you're insane to not exercise extreme caution because it will go wrong. Yeah, absolutely. So we had, um, uh, effectively, it's not actually bulletproof, but bulletproof perspex down there. Um, and we had, uh, obviously, a, a receiving thing that's like a huge uh, like box thing that can actually take the arrows and, uh, and stop them dead in their tracks. And then, of course, other precautions but that notwithstanding you can't be at the camera and you wanted to be right near the coke can so tell me how the recording mechanism works well it's actually a pretty smart little camera um uh it has an end trigger which is not uncommon in 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 high speed cameras uh but it basically um you hit the it's i assume it's recording all the time into a into a buffer and then when the action has happened you hit the on button and that becomes the end mark and it back times from there and I'm assuming, um, and I'm not seeing all the engineering specs of this camera, but I'm, what I'm assuming is happening is that it is recording this, the image, like most high-speed cameras, into an internal RAM or some super-fast memory of some sort. So um, when we hit the trigger, either at the beginning or the end of the shot, it will then buffer it out into the um, internal little SD cards. And it does it pretty much in real time. So it's not too onerous, but... Um, if you've got um, 10 seconds and you've shot that at 1,000 frames, it's going to be a couple of minutes. Yeah. 
So we have this start trigger, which is what you'd expect. You press the button. You don't then press it off. It just basically records out and for its uh, whatever it allowances. Yes. And then that end trigger, which is what we were using, which is you yep. ran in after the archer had shot the Coke can, stopped it, and you got the previous... Now, it could be 19 seconds, but in fact, you were doing it half. Yeah, there's two modes. Um, you can do what they call half trigger. The, the buffer is, I think, capable of nearly 19 seconds. Um, we were down to nine. Um, might be 17 or 18. I'm not, I'm not 100% certain. But really, that's a lot of time. 19 seconds mm. in real time. And then you shoot that at 500,000 frames. You're going to be recording a lot of information, probably too much. Now, that was going down to an SD card. And for those of you that are following along at home, it's the same specs SD card effectively as what you have in a 5D Mark III. So it has to be um, sort of pretty much a, a level 10. In our case, it was recording at 60 megabytes a second. Um, well, I'm sorry, that was the spec on the card. It wasn't actually going down to the card at that rate. Um, so you can't just stick in a, um, a crappy cheap SD card. That being said, it is ridiculous to be able to put 64 gig of uh, RAM in that camera because I remember um, near the end we'd done many shots by this stage at high speed and you walk up and commented how much more time we still yeah, had. I think it said 333 minutes left. But the SD card's not actually asked to do too much because the, the internal buffer is doing the high speed. So um, uh, when you've done a high speed shot, it just then plays it out in real time and therefore the SD card is, is, is capable of recording it. Yeah, yeah, though... The specs on the SD card are a window into the amount of compression that's applying yeah, in terms of the codec. I must admit, I don't know, um, what is the bit rate of this camera? Well, I don't know either, but that's because I haven't released it yet. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll find out. Yeah, we'll find out. Um, so, from a operational point of view, um, it's got quite a lot of buttons on it, hasn't it? Yeah, look, it's... it's it, if you're familiar with Sony cameras, um, it's not particularly difficult to use. It seems to, you know, in some ways follow the EX um, family line of cameras in terms of menu structure. Um, I only saw it an hour ago and was able to get it up and running in 20 minutes, half an hour going, you know. With these sort of cameras, it does pay to start at the beginning of the menu tree and go through the entire thing um, and also to have a manual at <laughs> at your call just in case you don't understand something because there's always some little button with an odd name and you're thinking what the hell is that um, but as a rule um, it was it's an easy camera to use uh, as I say it's really if you've used camcorders um, the picture quality uh, look the, the viewfinder on it really is pretty average I mean it's, um, it's pretty terrible um, but again $10,000 camera I mean a good viewfinder is going to cost you three, four, five thousand dollars $5,000 if not more now I'm, I'm only quoting from a fairly unreliable source in the sense that it's the internet. <laughs> but apparently the street price that is going around on the gossip sites is eight grand. Okay. Uh, seven nine 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 US. Um, interestingly though, most people are referring to it as two hundred and forty frames per second in H D before it goes down. But you think it's actually uh, Well I, I what it may do, and I know that they do this Sony uses this trick on their X D cam line of cameras, is um, when they move to high speeds they Rather than windowing, they, they do a line skip on the, I think, usually on the vertical resolution. Right. So maybe from 240, it's going um, um, a half, half vertical resolution. Well, we can obviously um, get into that a little more heavily uh, as we start pulling the stuff apart and having a look at it. So, I mean, in terms of audio, how do you run it? I mean, if you were you're not shooting at high speed, because obviously high speed is great, but, you know, you yeah. don't normally need... I mean, almost speed. all the cameras, when you go off speed... Um, so if you're not on 24, or 25, or 30, 
don't record the audio. Oh, no, 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 I realise that, but I'm saying if mm. you were running in one of those modes of 24, 25 or yep. 30, does it have XLR inputs? I mean, is it? can you use it as a normal camcorder? Is it a specialist yep. camera? It's got Canon 3-pin um, inputs. Um, looks like there's two of them. Um, and Sony's usually pretty good with the audio. Look, we, I haven't put audio through it, but the very fact that it's got professional XLR inputs is a very good sign. Um, so I would expect... You really could use this as a... You know, because it's a 35mm size sensor... You know, it's it, picture quality. Look, we've only shot the test this morning, and um, we'll, we'll know more about that. But wait, wait, wouldn't the lens mount be an issue, or is there other options? I think you can actually swing other options, can't you? I understand that um, this EX Sony EX mount. There's a whole bunch of um, different adapters. Um, so, of course, with the Sony lenses, you've you've got um, electronic control. Um, so, if you went to Canon, Nikon, or even PL, you might lose that. But um, uh, I. This particular, this typical, the kit lenses are usually very much budget lenses. Well, the the I can sort of tell you what it nominally is because that's the eighteen to two hundred, and the mm. difference between the seven nine nine, which I quoted a minute ago, the sorry seven nine nine nine, the eight thousand dollar body price, and the price with that lens is six hundred dollars. So okay. if you were to get the configuration you've got in your hand right now. That would be eight thousand six hundred, which indicates that lens is sort of nominally valued at at six hundred. Yeah, that says it all. Um, um, but look, uh, look again on it because it's not very fast, is it? No, it's, it's three five at best, and then um, yeah, the slower, iris ramps. So two hundred, it's six three. Um, so look, you know, out, it's a perfectly serviceable piece of glass, but it, it's certainly not high performance. Well, I know it can take the ca- the uh, Sony glass, the um, the stills glass from the Sony cameras. Though I just don't own any of it. <laughs> no, it's the format. I, I, I don't either. It's not as common. Um, but I'm pretty sure you get adapters and, mm. you know, you'd be able to get what you want on it. Um, having said that, this is a camera that I don't think you'd put master primes on. No, no. And it's probably not designed for that either. Um, at that kind of price, it's servicing a completely different part of the market. Yes, absolutely. But look, having said that, I mean, again, because it's so cheap, if, if I was doing a commercial and there's a shot and it's high speed. Uh, and I said to the producers, well, could we get a Phantom um, HD Gold or a Vice Cam? And it was a single shot, and that was going to cost them anything between four, five, six thousand dollars $6,000 to get a camera like that in. The answer is going to probably, on, on, on anything from low to medium budget commercials, be no. Yeah, we, look, we just can't afford that for a shot. But this is a camera that, for a shot... Um, could be the go and to be honest i suspect the dynamic range and general performance of the camera is inferior um but you know honestly most uh high speed shots are so cool that you know that you're going ooh ah isn't that amazing as opposed to looking at all its other faults um that i think this is a great little machine as an option for low cost effective high speed yeah well let's discuss that because um not a week ago you and i were shooting uh baseball players mm. and that was being shot on the vice cam now the vice cam is i guess a notch up in terms of engineering and also a notch back in terms of it's not that wasn't the latest technology so we're not sort mm. of really comparing them but for that experience you were able to shoot um with a completely different type of approach but that was tethered to a computer yes and certainly gave superior performance um in terms of frame rates in terms of dynamic range in terms of resolution probably in terms of everything but um, this is a camera that you could almost buy for a day's rental of one of those machines. Hmm. Uh, so um, if you were doing, you know, if, if your bag was uh, a lot of sport, 
um, this would be a, a fantastic machine. Um, you couldn't drag a, 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 one of those cameras around. This is something you can almost have in a kit yeah. as an extra. The Vice Cam had the uh, same phenomenon, of course, of being able to uh, select after the take and then hmm. write it down. But again, for the same reasons as we had today with the arrows, um, it is. It, it is. I mean, this is. It slows you down on set. You can't just go. Oh, let's go to another quick take. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is just minutes, um, not tens of minutes. Um, but yes, it's, it's, you wouldn't be shooting, you, you don't shoot non-stop. Yeah. Okay, so let's swing around and, and compare to something else you've been uh, doing a little bit of testing with, and certainly I've been doing a lot of testing with, which is the Canon 5D Mark III. Hmm. And uh, we've been looking at that in terms of a bunch of stuff, and we've got some interesting results on that. But I guess, what's your first impression? You don't normally shoot with an SLR, do you? It's not, not your sort of bag. No, I have to admit... Um I, I have used Canon Mark II, um, and I've been impressed, and I've, I've seen some amazing um, images come from that camera, but I, I've not had a lot of personal experience. Um, the The reality is, I mean, my personal feeling is um, for not a lot of extra money, you can move into Epics, Alexas, Red Ones. Um, you know, if you're working on budgets of, you know, starting 30, 40, up to 100,000, a couple of hundred dollars for a camera extra um, um, shooting a commercial, why would I be using a 5D un- unless I was looking for that big sensor? So, well, okay, let's talk about that, though. I mean, one of the advantages that Canon seem to have, before we even get to the the back, if you like, just mm. in terms of the lensing, is you sell so many of the darn lenses that you can afford to get the price down if you're Canon. So yeah. your L-glass, while not really good for focus pulling give somebody remarkably good actual optics for what, you know, seems like a lot if you're a punter and not much at all if you're a DOP. Oh, I mean, it, it, certainly whenever put in context of the cost of PL glass, um, the stills glass almost seems throwaway. It's it's so so much cheaper. Um, and, of course, the other aspect is that L glass is full frame. It's covering a 24 by 36 millimetre sensor and, and, then the, and the 5D Mark II and III and Mark I, of course, are all capable of that. So that really, it's a unique look that you won't get from other cameras. The Epic's getting close. It's cropping, I think, at 1.3. Um, so it's it's getting there. And with the Dragon update at 1.2, it's going to be almost as. The thing is, though, I mean, we can't pull focus on it the way you can with um, primes. And obviously, I don't think they outgun primes. But if you weren't pulling focus and you mm. were just looking at it from an optical point of view, I mean, how how much can you tell the difference? Is it something that you would sort of be more worried about build quality on or would it be really you just think it looks just that much nicer optically optically they're awesome i don't think the issues there i mean having said that an issue with something like l glass or those mass produced items they they work within certain tolerances so you can have a 50 mil cannon and go wow this is the best lens and then go the next day and buy the same lens and Go oh, what's, you know, this is not but performing on I mean, the other one. They are by even Master Prime standards fast glass. Like a one two is a fast piece of glass. Yeah, I look and I um and in terms of optical quality, interesting enough, I did a test with a Zeiss ZF fifty mm-hmm. mil with a Master Prime fifty mil, and it stopped at five six optically. They were the same. Wow. Now wide open, we would see a different story. Yeah, yeah, there is a real difference at. Uh, between the sweet spot of those lenses mm. and, uh, and look, you know I, I mean a lot of the commercial work i do um i don't use canon glass very often but you know a lot of the stuff there's not strangely that much focus pulling 
Well, what what are you using on your Epic? Um, a Canon on, mount or a PL mount? On my Epic, um, it's whatever the job requires. Sometimes it, the PL mount's on it. A lot of the time I have a Canon mount on it, and I'm running the Zeiss ZFs with a Canon adapter. And I've even just bought two of the Canon Zooms, the 24 to 70 and the 70 to 200. Mm, nice and lens. the 7200 nice is, nice. the Mark II is a really impressive lens. Tell me, you had some Nikon glass, I remember. remember when yes, we were oh, I did, yes. Yeah, I had some AIS lenses years ago. I think I gave them away. Um, <laughs> Not to me, my friend. <laughs> look, optically, again, they were really, you know, very impressive. I mean, they, that glass, even though decades old, was professional grade glass that maybe when you and I were kids, we were watching, uh, reading National Geographic magazines, and that's what they were shot on. There's absolutely nothing, nothing shabby about them. And strangely enough, mechanically, they were even probably superior to many modern pieces of glass simply because of the hard focus marks, the longer focus throw. They were actually in some ways more practical for cine use. Well, Jason, if he was here, was point out that he's moving from Canon glass to like Zeiss glass that's modified for Canon mounts. Um, and that's a whole separate thing that we uh, have been looking at in the uh, course over at PhD mm. and I've been doing. But, but I'm just going to touch on one other aspect of this, which is this idea that um, in terms of the, uh, again, I can get away with this because Jason isn't here, in terms of the wide open fetish, and, you know, yeah. I think you and I, you were DOPing for Jason directing and I happened to be on set supervising, and he was like, yep, just gaffer tape it wide open, don't even move off. And, and I, I need very little arm twisting with that. I was going to say that, except, you know, I'm going to get away with this because he's in here. I watched uh, War Horse the other night. Yes. Not shot on cannon glass. I mean, this is a complete rat hole. And I just, there was a shot as they were leaving the town. It's the first time that uh, the boy loses his horse to the uh, to the army. And and I just remember thinking, you know what, that's got to be at like five, six or four, maybe even higher. It's just an incredibly well-composed frame. Yeah. And it, it you know, if you'd shot that on a an indie project you would have like completely slammed it to be shallow depth of field with nds Look, and, and, and could i say if, if that was a low budget indie film you've never had that production value necessarily in the frame and i have to say that the shallow depth of field is a wonderful way of hiding multitudes of sins as well um and also it's not always appropriate uh you know if you've got a and i sometimes see shots go to air and it's a, maybe an overcast day or it's a particularly flat scene and then they've mushed it out at T14 or F14 and it looks terrible. I mean, it really only works if you've got bokeh and, and contrast and things that um, you can still make out shapes and they're interesting and they look good. It, once you go so far out of focus... Okay, let me, let me call you on that then. So, And I mean by this, mm. call you I'll get, get you to explain to me. So like you've got an overcast day, you've got a shot of several characters. In this case, they were crossing a little wooden bridge or mm. a stone bridge and there was a town behind. Now, forget budgets for a second. Obviously, yeah. Spielberg can like buy a new sun and, and do whatever he wants. But <laughs> and by that, I mean, you know, rebuild daylight. But if you're shooting that, you're saying, okay, it's an overcast day, so I don't have a lot of zinging in the background, yes. and I can't light up the entire town with, with giant um, park hands or whatever. So what are you doing? Are you you're not going shallow depth of field because you think it's going to mush out? I, I, I would go less depth of field because, yes, you get that because the background is already low contrast, and the, the more it's out of focus, it blends the contrast. Um, so it, it sort of grays out. looks, you know, I mean, uh, in words... Um, mush is a good, really is probably the best word for it. Um, but if it was a bright day and it was backlit and there was specular highlights, 
um, and uh, dark shadows, you'd get this wonderful mottling and maybe you'd get bokeh hits um, and it begins to take on that magical feeling. Um, but if it was really, really flat, you've just turned into porridge. Because in a lot of those big Hollywood productions, the, the main time you're going to be wide open at that kind of a range is the romantic comedy, whatever, yeah. the two lovers meet and you just got the, you know, party lights in the background mm. lightening up. And that does look good, and it's a, but it's a kind of cliche of itself. But obviously you're going to go that way, it seems these days, with indie films at the drop of a hat. Yes, and, and, and I'd have to say, I, I think there's a, um, a new set of parameters for drama as opposed to commercials. And I'm, I'm usually at the moment doing commercials, and I'm, the average shot up on a commercial is maybe a second, two seconds. Yep. Um, you very quickly want to focus in on the eye on what you want to show is the action. Um, if it was a drama and shots might be up, maybe up 10, 15, 20 seconds, the length of a commercial, that really shallow depth could frankly be really annoying. Um, I think that depth of field suits different genres. Um, so on drama, I, I, you know, 284 um, is not a bad stop at all. So I've seen this film. I can't talk about it um, much other than I think I'm allowed to say, actually, I'm, I'm allowed to review it as this goes to air. So I will say this. Uh, I saw Dark Shadows, which hasn't okay. come out yet, but I saw it at a preview. And and I interestingly was speaking to um, some of the filmmakers about it. And they were saying that, and you can judge this from the trailer, so I'm not giving anywhere, anywhere about the plot, but there seemed to be a theatricality about the staging that Burton was coming up with. Mm. And the lensing to do that was to allow a composition that allowed Depp to have a lot of screen time. And by that, I mean before the cut. So he would just he would compose the shot. He would allow Johnny Depp to have some position in that frame that was beautifully composed, mm. and then they would hang around on that shot for a long time. As a consequence, they had a reasonable amount of depth of field because it just didn't feel like you could sustain that shot. So is that what you're talking about? That if you'd had a really shallow depth of field, you'd want to cut out of it earlier. Yeah, I mean, so if the shot was literally two seconds, um, then um, you really need people's eyes to go to Johnny depth. Um, but if it's up for a minute then there's really time for people to look around and enjoy, you know uh, see the environment that he's, he's, he's um, um, in. So, uh, look, I mean, it's, it's hard to make sweeping generalisations with these things, but I, I, generally in terms of drama, I think more depth of field um, is a better thing, um, but incredibly short-form things like TV commercials, possibly music videos with very, very fast mm. cutting, um, the shallow depth works better. It is nice General. when you can compose a shot and let it have time, and then especially if you can have something happening in the background that kind of draws the audience yes, in. Yes, with a, an amazing art department. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, let's face it, they, uh, they are spectacularly good, those guys. Okay, well, so, so I'll get on this because I was talking about Canon lenses. So I'm going to come back to Canon now. So we're talking about the Mark III. I say that one of the great things about it is being able to get a Ford glass that, you know, is really, really good yes. yourself. Um, but the camera at the Mark II had some limitations, not least of which was that it was a stills camera turned into video. So we have line skipping, we have compression because it's only an 8-bit, we have a bunch of stuff. Uh, the audio was mono. There's just a whole lot of things going on there. Um, and a lot of that, not all of it, has been addressed. But what we were testing was how far those things have been addressed. And we were doing, what, uh, a bunch of tests, I guess. Do you want to describe some of the things we were shooting? Um, we looked at compression which was um, one of the limitations, and um, we looked at um, aliasing. So i got some stats here I thought I'd share with you guys. These are from our um, 
from our class over at FXPhD, which Tom and I were doing, um, there's two uh, forms of, uh, well, actually there are two cards in the new Mark III, which is the CF card and the SD card. And then there are two forms of compression. There's the IBL uh, and there's the All-I. Now the IBL, IBL, IPA, IPB, I don't want to say IBL, I always say that, I don't know why I do. IPB, the IPB um, recording is essentially meant to be the same as what's in the Mark II. They're both shooting um, in a format that records a hero frame and then offsets to that. That's the nature of the um, IPB. What I didn't expect uh, when we're doing the test, because I had sort of sussed out that it was fairly good quality in the Mark III, is that we're actually seeing record data rates that are actually lower in the Mark III than in the Mark II, Tom. So if you look it up in the manual, and and I'm just going to give you some numbers, but don't worry, I'll I won't completely geek out on numbers. At IPB, we're talking on a CF card. It says, oh, you should have a card capable of 10 megabytes a second. And if you're using the SD card, 6 megabytes a second. Well, that's what they say you want in the cards. That's not what we're seeing, nor would we expect to, in the actual record times. In the actual record times in the Mark II camera, we were seeing stuff around 5.6. Same exact setup, because, Tom, you explain how you had the two cameras set up so we could actually get the same shot. Well, we literally um, put it on, a, in a, I suppose what you, we, I call it a T-bar, which is really just a simple piece of metal, and both cameras can lock on, so um, their movements are identical. So it looked like a stereo rig without mm. a mirror, but of course a vast interaction. It could have been, a yeah, in, in essence a side-by-side rig. Yeah, so, so as much as you can, notwithstanding that they're offset by the width of a camera body, they're filming at the same time the identical... Um, stuff and we're seeing 3.5 versus 5.6 so a significant drop there uh, in the amount of data that's actually going down to the cards and we had very high spec cards so there's no uh, problem there i got john to repeat some of these tests in uh, chicago so they're valid so that was surprising we then went to the all i which of course only exists in the mark 3 and doesn't exist in the mark 2 and we were seeing more like eight megabytes a second so more than we were seeing in the mark 2 and uh, certainly more than we were seeing in the alternate version inside the Mark III. What's interesting, though, if I was to rate the cameras in terms of image quality, I would say that the Mark III footage in either setting is uh, better than the Mark II. Marginally better in the IPB, um, but significantly better in terms of compression in the in the all-eye. And we did that by tricking the sensor with some tests that we devised, which you'd have to look at at PhD, which shows... Away, it basically forces the the compression to come to the surface, and we actually see the the blocking artifacts. Um, it's the sort of thing that you would see if you were shooting speckly water um, kind mm. of sunrise. Uh, in our case, we were using a particular reflector and stuff, and we can make it sort of do it in and off on uh, on at will. Some of the other tests that we we're doing in terms of the rolling shutter had no well, not much. I have to say, Tom, almost no noticeable difference between the two the rolling shutter looked you know virtually the same to me oh that's surprising i re- i w- really would have expected the mark three to be an improvement because it is an issue on that mark two yeah no I, I would not say that you know if you were seeing anything rolling shutter wise mm. on the mark two you're probably going to see it on the mark three mm. you could argue that it would be marginally better but not enough that you would say hey if we use the mark three we'd get rid of this problem oh, remember that shot we did we had a mark two uh bolted onto a golf buggy was it <laughs> and the whole thing just turned to jello. I mean, it was yeah. utterly unusable. Yes, yes, that was kind of a lot of fun. <laughs> um, and so some of the other tests we did uh, uh, are interesting, but the one that really, really stood out that I think even you were like, um, 
maybe surprised at was the ISO test that I showed you this morning. Yes, my God, um, the the, new, the noise floor on the Mark III is is very impressive. Now, of course, on the Mark II and the Mark III, we've still got an 8-bit file which is being compressed down um, to an H.264. And what happens as part of that is it effectively raises the black level to a point that it clips out the noise. Now, I explain this um, sort of in more detail. But, of course, if you think about it, if you've got like a, a unit of, uh, let's say we'd say a scale from 0 to 1. Okay, so if you've got something up at 0.9 and it's quite well lit and you plus or minus a bit around that, say half... So up to 9.5 and down to 8.5, you've got this variation that's, you know, kind of 5% um, plus or minus. If you've got that same variation down at near black, plus or minus is, you know, huge amount, like 50% variation just because of the maths, right? Yeah. And so if you've got a number at 1 and you go up a half, it goes up to 1.5 and down to 0.5. That's a vast amount of difference, a 50% variation. So you're always going to see noise in the blacks. What they do at the very black level, though, to stop it just being a huge encoding problem is they sort of effectively crush the blacks and they crush the blacks this causing um, the black to be black so it doesn't matter what you do you can shoot as we did it god I think it was like 26,000 ISO and black is black but (laughs) anything off black anything that's kind Mm. of near black that isn't actually crushed to black uh, gets really really noisy so we shot some tests with some dark blues and some greys and stuff now I think you'd agree at 5,000 on the Mark II it was pretty crappy. I mean, you'd yep. use it if it was the only shot yeah, of the assassination yeah. of the president. But, yeah, otherwise it's like, yeah, it's not really professional. At the Mark III, though, you and I, I think, were in agreement that 5,000 was completely usable. Yes. And and I would say I, I, we recommended 5,000, 6,500 6, is some of the tests. We went up to um, some higher values. You want to have some room there for um, grading and stuff, but... That ISO difference, that's, I think, the biggest noticeable difference. More than the rolling shutter, which I don't really see much of, more than the compression, more than um, stuff to do with a bunch of other stuff that we were testing. It's that one thing about ISO that I think would make a huge, huge difference if you're filming. Of course, it doesn't change anything about the quality of the light. Absolutely. And and there's look, it's a great thing. I mean, um, uh, it's a wonderful thing, but it's something that, you know, I mean, really, even at a thousand ASA, assuming assuming you've got fast glass, wow, it's got to be getting dark before you're going to be running out of light. So, um, uh, you know, look, three thousand ASA, I'd be thrilled, thrilled. Um, once it's going past that, it's beginning to move into a night scope. Um, well. Now, now, to be really careful, of course, and I'm sure most of you listening to this podcast are aware of this, but just be super, I mean, and you obviously know this, Tom, <laughs> but it is it is slightly um, confusing with the numbers because these numbers suddenly get really quick, really, and it's mm. an exponential scale. So it's obviously doubling, right? So so when we say it's good at 1,000, one stop is two, two stops is four, four. And, and so we go. So obviously down at 100 and to 200 to 400, that's the same as 200, 2,000, 4,000, 8,000 up at the other end. Um, but that being said, I do want more than 800. Mm. Um, but once you have a rule of thumb of 5,000, like yeah. if you're it's under 5,000. It's just 5, 000, diminishing rate of return. Um, the, you know, yeah, once yeah. you go past each each stop you get, I mean, it's great. It's handy. Um, and especially with especially with the type of chip Canon's using with, with a variable ISO settings on it. Unlike REDS, which is just sort of a right. metadata, yep. give you an idea where you're at sort of thing. Um, so um, you're not ending up using ND57, you know, when you're shooting in daylight. Um, 
Uh, but look, uh, you know, if you give it to actually, me, I'll take it. That is it. actually a really good point because if you didn't have that variable gain in camera level, you would actually almost dread a camera that was good at 5,000 ISO because oh. you'd be wanting to stick NDs on yeah. there permanently. Because you're stuck at 150th all the time in motion, yeah. um, it'd be a nightmare. But the Canon basically does have those settings where, and, and I've forgotten the exact numbers now, but it's there's a range in the Mark III as there is in the Mark II where it's pretty much exactly the same noise floor. It goes up and down a bit in between the master stops and the third stops, but we're talking like really small amounts because it isn't one ISO rating like it is the red where you would rate yes. it. Do you rate your red Epic at 800? I look generally, but I, I treat the ISO um, as... It's, it's it, you know it's not a definitive thing. I just I throw it around all the play all the time. Because um, I really use it in the Mark III as an extra part of the aperture and mm. exposure time. And of course, when as you say you're shooting video and you really can't go off one fiftieth for a one forty eighth um, hundred eighty degree shutter. Yeah. It's I must awesome say, I, I use the thing. ISO especially on red more for the rushes output. Right. Okay. So that if I want to show my intention of how dark I want it to look or how bright, I use the ISO, but I'm using the raw and the histogram to really expose. Hmm. So underneath, I've got always a good, strong exposure, but if I want it to look um, not as bright and happy, I might bring it down to three or 400 or 200, 250, um, but that the sensor would still be not saturated, but would be well exposed. Well... Let's shift gears now and talk about gear, if we mm. can. Oh, can I can I rat hole one thing? Yeah, sure. Um, my little nitpick with Canon. Yeah. Um, it seems strange that the IPB data rate has dropped, um, and obviously they're using a better codec. Um, it's a more efficient compression, and hey, that's a good thing. Um, but I would have rather them have maintained the data rate um, and just improved the quality even further. Um, I mean, CF cards, I mean, it's all cheap as chips, really. Um, now, I realise if you were doing the type of work, maybe interviews where there's, you know, hours and hours and hours of footage, um, that works to your advantage. But, you know, because we know that the camera is capable of that higher data rate, um, it would be great if there was a, just a second, uh, a standard and a HQ in the IPB. Yeah, that's true. Though I guess they've already figured that they've got two settings already, so going to three maybe would even add yes. more confusion in the marketplace. But, of course, the intra-frame, um, while more edit-friendly, is not as efficient a codec. Yes, true. It's interesting, though, we should uh, flag this. When Jason and I were filming in L.A., Jason commented, I think on the last podcast we did from the airport terminal, that um, you know he was getting rid of all his 16-gig uh, CF cards and just moving over to SD cards. And we did some numbers on that. In the Mark II, if we were recording as we do for interviews, we're talking about 330 megabytes a minute. We just did the maths on this. Um, on the Mark III, if you were doing an interview and thus you weren't so concerned about some of the things that we've been talking about, you can actually be running at 235 megabytes a minute, which is, you know, um, near as damn at 100 megabytes a minute less, which basically means a third more record time on the mm. same media. But, of course, we didn't do that when we were in L.A. We were shooting interviews and we whacked the darn thing onto all I because why wouldn't we, right? Why wouldn't you, yeah. And it was running out at 690, 685 megabytes a minute. So we were plowing through CF cards, in his case, twice as fast as we'd previously been with, doing. With 16s. Well, in 16s, he, he just, yeah, literally went through like six and I still had my first SD card, but I had a 64 gig SD card in there. It's not so much that the SD cards were more efficient. It's just that he was so used to being able to get a certain amount of record time 
And when he went over to All Eye on the Mark mm. III, he was getting half as much time as he previously could on a on a 16-gig card. Uh, it's a pretty safe assumption in all these things that computer media never grows old. No. I mean, it ob- you know, you just... It's, it, and actually, it's not even that expensive anymore. I mean, it's just... I mean, I've been buying... You know, every year I buy a new lot and it's quadruple the capacity. Anyway, if you want to see more of those tests and actually see the clips and, and all the stuff that we were doing um, that's all happening over at uh, FX PhD in your course, Tom. But can we discuss gear? Because you had a really cool thing that you bought that you took on set today. I actually saw it at NAB and wanted to buy it. And I was kind of hanging back thinking, God, is this another one of these things that I'm going to buy? And then sort of think I wish I'd re- researched a bit more. And no sooner had I sort of turned around to find out if anyone I knew had one than you actually walked in with two into the office. Mm. Well, if, if most camera people ever have a love-hate relationship, it's got to be with the FlexiFill. Um, it, you know, it's a great invention. It's such a clever idea. But honestly, they can drive you absolutely spare. Um, the fact that they are so flexible um, uh, means that, you know, half the time a small, small shoot, you have to press gang someone who normally has no idea. So you say, oh, can you just hold this flexi fill? And it matters a lot exactly what angle you hold it at. Absolutely. And they're always drifting. It's boring. I always have to hold it at a tough angle. Um, and the very fact that they're flexible, they tend to distort and therefore not become um, very effective. And, of course, the square bounce, which I saw at NAB, I, I think Jason raved about it, and um, it got a fair amount of publicity because it really is just one of those do, do things like, why didn't I think of that? It's such a, um obvious but so, brilliant. So describe it to somebody that hasn't seen it, what it actually it's, looks like. It really is an umbrella um, that instead of having a curve in it, um, um, when you bring the umbrella up, it's a flat surface. So it's literally a flat umbrella. But the umbrella idea has two advantages a the square umbrella is reasonably rigid so in wind it would be much more effective and of course you've got a a very easy to hold or mount pole um you know with flexi fills you could even get little mounting things for them but you know the breath of wind would blow it over they'd be good for studios and that's it but with a square bounce on a c uh c stand rig or any stand with a, a knuckle You've got a uh, nice locked-in thing, and if you ask someone to hold it, they've just got to hold a, a pole, and it's much easier. My, one of my little pet peeves is with flexi-fills, people get lazy and they hold them low. So the, the, the most unsympathetic you could ever do to somebody is light them from below. You, you know, leave that for Dracula and monsters. <laughs> so you really, you really want to hold it at least at their eye level, if not above them. Um, and that's hard with the FlexiFill. And the square bounce, no-brainer. Okay, so this square umbrella, and that's a really good description of it, is a bit like having a poly. A, you know, yeah, poly on a stick. Of, yeah, on a stick. And now what is the price of this? And you get two, right? They're criminally cheap. Um, and I think I paid 168 US, and it comes in a handy little pack, and you've got a silver one and a white one. So... Uh, really, um, uh, everybody should go out and buy one. And we were using them today, and they did exactly what they were meant to do. Yeah. I mean, they just worked. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, obviously, if you've got a lighting truck, you won't be pulling them out. But um, on those small little jobs, um, they're, they're fantastic. I really I recommend them. I'll be interested to see over time how they last. Yeah. But look, even once a year, I wear the bra- break them because they are umbrellas. I mean, yeah. you know, if someone drops them, smash, I'll just go buy another set. Yeah, that's the thing, though, couldn't you? And they're, they're light enough to pack. I mean, let's face it, trying to take anything butterflexy on a plane is a disaster. Oh, yeah, you can't. Um, 
but you're right. You you would take the one on the plane, and then you'd be stuck with the problem of how to mount it at the other end. Well, and and silly as it sounds, it's an umbrella. Yeah. I mean, it was hot out there today, and we were using it as an umbrella, <laughs> so we didn't get sunburnt. Okay, so that's one piece of gear that uh, that definitely uh, caught my eye. I'm going to flag another thing that I think was really phenomenal that I'm going to try and post uh, on FX Guide, which uh, you wouldn't, I don't think, have seen. It's um, actually software. Uh, TrueLight, who make um, a ton of obviously grading uh, stuff as well as full pipeline solutions, have a really cool kind of super LUT thing that I'm just in love with at the moment. So, Tom, if you were on set, you and I filming, and I was helping you with sort of DITing or whatever. Mm. It's reasonable that you might want to have a LUT between your camera and the monitor for the client, yes. the agency. Okay, now let's imagine for a second it is a commercial, and we are that kind of a commercial that's in a studio that we're okay with fussing with stuff. We're not a low-budget indie, and we're not, you know, these aren't our best friends. We want to make that look good for the client, and it's a reasonable budget, you know, or large-budget yeah. commercial. And clients are literal. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's hard, and, and you can understand why, to say, oh, it will look good later. Yeah, but we know, you and I, that if you can actually make it look good on the day, it actually reflects well. And I've got to say, the other thing I learned when I was doing, and I you know, spent years, decades in commercials, I remember talking to, um, actually it was about a friend of yours, Spider, and I was talking to the agency who had hired this guy as a DOP, who's a, a friend of it, both of ours, and, um, and I was saying I really liked shooting with him because he'd managed to pull off this extraordinary shot where it had gone into rain but it had been in sun and in rushes I'm sitting there with my flame and I'd got all the rushes over and I was looking at I just got I cannot believe I was standing there under an umbrella off to the right and because rain doesn't show up on film if you don't backlight it these actors looked like they were still in sun and it was just mm. literally everybody else was huddled under an umbrella but it intercut with the shot before and after it that would have been shot earlier in the day that was sun and, and this agency person said, them, I, think, I remember this today, they said, you know what, I can actually be pretty flexible on the director. If I've got a DOP that I know, then worst comes to worst, we're going to have some good footage and I can always get something out of it. But if I don't have a good DOP, I'm dead. So as an agency producer, it's actually for some of this work, when it's not performance-based, mm. it's actually just a hell of a lot more important to get a good DOP than it is a director. And of course, not being disrespectful to directors, but I was kind of stunned at this remark because I was like, really? And they're like, well, think about it for a second. It's a commercial, right? As long as the pack shot looks awesome and the rest of the stuff kind of looks good, if it isn't a performance-driven thing, I'm not going to be dead in the water. Uh, having said that, I, I think any, any, any DOP would agree that um, working with a good director would always mean oh, no, better totally. results. But my surprise was not so much that we're for a second suggesting getting rid of directors. And if, I said, if it sounded like I was saying that, I apologize. No, but my point was that the agency appreciated that, hmm. that they knew that that's what that's you know how key it was that it wasn't one of these situations where they were just nonchalant about it they knew exactly what was going yeah. on and it has the added a lot box has the added advantage that if if you are dealing with agency and there is a look that you yourself and the director are keen on um then it's much easier to push that look if everyone on set has seen that look mm-hmm. say oh you know you want a blue cyany that that's that's the thing you want to do. If from the very very beginning, that's the look that everyone's seeing, you are l- much less likely to go into battle um, at a grade when when um, people have seen maybe really flat, boring rushes. Looked at them. I mean, editors even do this sometimes, where they've just seen them for months on end um, working on this project, and then it comes to the grade and a look gets put on. And they go, oh oh, that's that that, that that's not our project. But if it's luttered <laughs> and a, a look or that type of look is already on from the beginning, 
then you're much more likely to get where you want to be. Okay, so so let me keep going then because this box that we're talking about, the stuff that was happening on set uh, that I saw at NAB, wasn't just a LUT box because a LUT is effectively a way of mapping colours. The guys that make um, base light and true light and everything else had come up with uh, an on-set box for doing basically like what I'm going to call sort of that kind of work. It sits between the camera and the... Um, and the viewing monitor, but more than that, um, what it did is it had uh, the ability to have what's kind of like a super light. So what you could do is you could go off to your film light and whatever and produce a regionalized color correction that actually had like a grad on the sky and, you know, all the things, secondaries. windows, secondaries, absolutely, um, everything, whichever way you want to call it, <laughs> all of those things. And you produce that as one huge kind of basically set of settings that would almost be a bit like doing the save uh, on a normal box where you would just uh, this is the setup I've saved it right yeah. thing is though it saves it as an open EXR file it contains the original picture and the one that's gone through this kind of super lot and all the settings and then the on set box can pull that up and it can do two things firstly it can display that so you have all of that secondary stuff happening and then you can adjust any of it as if you had like a film light on set though of course you don't have the panel and all the other stuff that goes with mm. it but it gets better than that because you have the original and the comparison. Let's say you go on set for whatever reason and somebody hasn't got the right box and you're there going, ah. Well, you can literally just open up the file and you can see what it was and what it's going to look like. Like side by side, hmm. there are the two rendered frames done. It's not like, well, I have this LUT, but I can't show it to you right now. I'm sorry because I don't have one here on set. And it's controlled through a laptop? Uh, well, actually, it's controlled through a like a 2 or 3U high box that you would have on set. But the thing that really turned it from super funky to just mind-numbingly cool in my world is that that same super LUT, which is an OpenEXR kind of package, I can then take into Nuke. And I can just load it up in Nuke, and it becomes just a node in Nuke. And so if I develop this, I can then hand it to you, and on set, if we're in a, you know, this is not, this is not necessarily cheap or what you'd do on every production, I could punch that up and you could see it. But then, of course, you would shoot that footage without that in the pipeline because it's simply happening after the camera before the monitor mm. but then as soon as you go into post if you're going to bring those shots up on a you know on a nuke workstation or whatever else to look at it you can load that same um node up and again in nuke adjust all the values is it just nuke that that'll work will it go to no, resolve final cut. it happens in final cut as well wow now it it isn't Gonna, so DaVinci have a similar sort of thing, but not as advanced as this. Um, but the point is, if you did go to DaVinci and say, well, I thought we were going to do this on a true light, or we moved from film light to some other supplier, at the post house level, we've got a different suite. Well, again, you're not dead in the water, because they could do a comparison between the before shot and the after shot and sort of work out what yeah. you were talking about. Just not automated. Not automated. But the thing is, that's actually more valuable than it sounds, because if everybody gets involved <laughs> with liking a look, being able to send you know, that... It could obviously email that to somebody and say, hey, you guys are going to have a look at this over at our post house back in Sydney because we're mm. out at, at wherever. This is what we're playing with on set today. And and in that one file, you actually have the before and after. So you can say, oh, okay, see what you're kind of talking about. And then you can load it up and use it. But also know that there's no chance of, okay, I thought that was the 4138 LUT. No, no, this is the 4136. Because when it's just numbers and when it's just like, things yeah which one we're talking about i can't remember when you have an actual picture in there and that actually i mean it's stupid but that shows up as an icon on your mac right so you can actually like just you know run through the little icons on your mac and you can actually see the little icons and even the icon is a split screen between the before and after so you can say okay that was a shot 
So it's not just like some generic picture of, of Marcy that's got it mm. applied. It's the shot. And you go, okay, well, that was the shot we were using. So that's the one. I'd love to see that at, at play. My, initially, when you said secondaries, I was thinking, oh, how could you use that? Because it's so shot specific. But thinking about it, I mean, even just something like a, a simple vignette. Yep would be something that could be easily global. And don't forget, you can have this as a starting point. So the, the principle of this is you've got a box on set so that when you load that up, you say, okay, well, this is what we're kind of thinking. Okay, well, now we framed this shot compared to yesterday. It's different. No problem. And I'll just adjust it for you. And it just right away immediately would adjust that. So you said to me, hey, look, that's great, Mike, but can you lose a vignette? I just click a button and it's gone. Mm. So it's not locked in. But it's, not, it's, it's less like um, rocket science. It's less like... Because I think the trouble with a lot of color science is it's so um, it excludes people. It's like if you don't understand the math and you don't understand what's going on with LUTs, it's just like magic. People load mm. things up and I can't tell what I'm looking at. I love the idea of producing color science that's kind of accessible. Well, I can see what it's doing. The icon yeah. even shows me the before and after, and it must have been that shot because that's the little bloody picture in the icon. Yeah, then, absolutely. And yeah. I can open it up full screen and I can look at it at full screen and show you what was before and after. And then if you don't mm. like it, I can knock bits out of it or put them back uh, uh, in. Look, it sounds wonderful. I, 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 I suppose I'm, I'm engineering only in a sense it's, it's, it's specialised. There's only a limited number of productions would A, have the time and the commitment to put well, that in can place. Can I say one word to you? Stereo. So you've now got some vignetting that you're seeing on mm. the mirrors and you're getting some really weird colour corrections oh, happening. Of course, yes, and So yes. you make up a really yeah. cool, complicated lot that covers a grad that you're seeing from the bottom of frame to line these pictures up. Like you basically yeah. have every tool at your disposal and you say, okay, well now that's what we were, I, I worked this out overnight. This is a really good thing for balancing up left and right eye for you. And okay, then you say, yeah. okay, great. Let's load that up it's and, gonna and use it. going to make much cleaner rushes. And yeah. Now I know it's specialist and I know that it's, but if you've got the same ability to tweak that on set and that just open the same darn little thing in your nuke setup. Well, that saves time and money. You've, you've a, done the work. And, you just started it. And, and of course we're all about closing that loop between having the DOP say, this is what I want, and people in post understanding what it was when they weren't there for that discussion. Yeah, that's a disconnect, and it has been mm. for a long time. So if I could show you some stuff on set as your supervisor, like your mm. VFX supervisor, and you could say, yep, yep, we're happy with that, knowing that I can get it out of your way if you don't want to see it, and then I can then just send that back to the guys at the office and say, hey, this is what uh, Tom was liking, we were showing the director on set kind of thing, mm. then we're in a way better position. Plus, Absolutely. if they can then get it and say, okay, look, we need to do this for these reasons and send it back. And I go, okay, I, I just like that. I like it when it's both more flexible than just a straight light. It's more accessible to the world because people don't just look eyes glass over like, what are you even doing? I don't understand. Mm. It's just the picture just changed. Can you stop pressing buttons and make things change? I know it just seems like a really good kind of workflow. Small, but uh, I just thought, Somebody well, if you want a bigger it. project that had a specialised look, then it would be it would be fantastic. And and you know, as you said at the outset, if you can get something looking really sharp and really cool on set, you're more likely to have buy-in for everybody. And you're more likely thinking about it to be more creative. Yeah, because it's non-destructive. Mm. I mean, if you, you know, once you're doing a final grade, and it's just sitting in a room, I don't know. There's something about the 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 the, the, the front line under fire on set that you know you, you and you'll try lots of Jimmy you can try lots of different things and you've got the time to do this but um you know sometimes even sweet accidents can um take you to wonderful places yeah i would say that you probably don't have time as the dop but in my experience when i've been on set i have periods that i have heaps of bloody time with nothing mm. to do um 
I like the ability to, you know, like you're working with trying to solve some problems because you need to get some serious lights up in the gantry and stuff's happening and things are going on and I can just, okay, you don't need me. This is not a green screen shot or anything else. Yeah. And I can just go up to the side and say, hey, look, I was working on some stuff from which stuff. I like that morning. idea, yes. You know what yep. I mean? Like, I think yep. that's, that is the case as long as it's non-destructive and as long as it's flexible enough to be sort of in and out quickly, which is why you need some hardware assist so it's, you know, punch it up. You put as much work into it as you want to as well. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I've, I've, I've said this many times. I mean, I beyond anyone else, you know, of course, the director, but beyond anyone else other than the director, the DOP and having them on side is the number one relationship that I always tried to seek out on set because if you get in sympathy with what the DOP is doing and you're seen to be contributing to their world, then it's going to cut everything else an enormous amount of slack. It's the worst thing in the world to have the DOP feel like you're kind of slowing them down or, or, um, or mucking them around because one of the problems is um, many DOPs, especially in commercials, aren't seen a lot after, after on set. Yeah. And so really if you make them slow down on set unnecessarily – then that's a bad thing. By the same token, you don't want to have stuff in post that you're when they're not there to defend themselves, saying, well, this wasn't shot right, blah, blah, blah. Mm. Um, you, you need to sink in with the DOP as much as possible. So what you're getting in post is what you wanted, and everyone's on side. It is a relationship of mutual interest. Oh, yeah. And also, you just need the DOP to give you access. You need to know stuff about what's going on with the camera. You need to be able to get in and get an HDR done. You just don't want to have the DOP feeling like you're a dick. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I think my... Uh, I, I think most modern DPs would would, would understand it. Um, (laughs) Sometimes it's a ridiculous schedule, so everyone's under pressure no matter what. Well, you have that temperament where nothing seems to to phase you. I don't think I've ever seen you get upset on set, and I don't know how you do it because I want to hit people often. But um, (laughs) It has crossed my mind. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, but you know what I mean? You must have had, and I I hope you're not referring to me, but you must have had people on set that just were almost like, technocrat fuss pots that just got in the way and you were like okay we really need to keep moving here yeah because there's an expectation from the producers um that you will finish the shots of the day and if it's a commercial you know often you're not coming back tomorrow if yeah. you haven't got that shot um then it's not in the project and i always feel that the sort of buck does stop a bit with the dop on set over that schedule yeah like the first is going to look at the dop and it is a good point too i i, I think if, if a dp is educated especially in post-production um then they're going to know where's best to compromise you know what what should we make sure we really do get and maybe well maybe we can let that go I mean, you know that's going to be um work in post but it's going to be a hell of a lot less work in post dealing with that issue than it is dealing with this one. Yeah, I mean, I used to always look for any opportunity I could to say, hey, taking that C stand out or that thing in the back or off to the side, I could just write, like 10 seconds it's done. Like yeah. in the time that we're talking about, I could have done it. That doesn't matter. So that when I did say, it really matters to me that that green screen doesn't have a huge crease in the middle of it, that the DP would be like, okay, yeah. give and take. And that C stand that's in front of the actor should really be moved. <laughs> <laughs> and just because you covered the underneath of that incredibly annoying object in green doesn't make it miraculously go it away. No. Yeah. Um, so is there any other gear that uh, that we should flag before? We have only limited amount this week, but... Uh, no, I think there's a hiatus. I mean, of course, we're post-NAB, um, so there's not a tremendous, I think, red are um, knuckling down to actually make it all happen. Um, I must admit, I am waiting and with any day to get an OLED EVF 
Mm-hmm. So I'm very excited about that and have high expectations. You, you really want that, don't you? Because you want the um, you really didn't like the original. I've, look, the original bomb EVF. It was a good EVF, um, no question, but just had a very strange non-linear response to 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 the lighting right. um, that made it. Um, you know, it was perfect framing. It was incredibly light compared to the old viewfinder, which was a very, very heavy one on the red. Um, and it's, you know, it's reasonably sharp. Um, but uh, the uh, I just found you know, often light levels vary. Um, if you're shooting outside and you can't control it, it really is good to be able to see that happening um, in the viewfinder. I just found the bomb didn't it just made everything. It was my bright and happy viewfinder. <laughs> it made everything look bright and happy. <laughs> um. Actually, I should mention that as we've been recording this, um, there is a new beta that's come out for the red. Um, so this was uh, uh, three point two, mm. uh, three two eight, sorry, three two eight for the epic and three, yeah, three two eight for the epic and for the scarlet, um, and that has added a whole lot of new stuff. It's, um, I believe, we're actually seeing four hundred frames, um, but I haven't got my red here to tell me because our epic is currently back getting the uh, M mod, so. Um, we got one of the original mm. epics, and it's been sent oh, back to get play back to the viewfinder. There's a whole bunch of really, really good things, but there's a beta. So, um, but uh, can I flag just one of those things? Yep. Sorry, because it's my right up my alley, and I went ape shit on all fours when I found out about it. They've enabled the gyro support. Yes, but it does come with. Um, I read something Jared said. It does come with a caveat. Oh, really? Um, and Jared said, "You are popping my balloons, I, Tom." Oh, sorry. <laughs> And I can't quote him directly, um, but he said, yes, we've turned it on, but it's it's kind of not quite close to useless. Um, we're just enabling it, getting it on, but we're not. it's not really going to be particularly useful at the moment. It's, it's all coming. Well, it's not going to be very useful until someone actually takes the data and does something with it. Mm. But somebody can't take the data and do something to it until they enable it. Yeah, and I think the data... Oh, um, reading Red User can be a quagmire, but... Um, uh, I also think the data at this stage is going to be reasonably gross oh, um, really? and will get better and better. Okay. Um, but, you know, we'll see when we actually see it. Yeah. I mean, we're totally across how generous Red is in, I mean, because they literally took our camera back uh, free and are upgrading it for free and doing mm. tons of stuff to it for free. So I like, have no complaints. We love free. Yeah. No, but, but obviously it's just super annoying when you don't have your camera and then a really cool <laughs> build comes up and you're like... It's expensive not having your camera. Yeah, oh, I really want that. Oh. I got to say too, I, I got a red moat the other day. Um, finally, and um, I know there's been issues, um, but certainly the red moat, as being delivered at the moment, um, was performing really well for me. Uh, I've yet to put on a job. I did some tests, and it was pairing. I got good distance out of it. Um, it was all um, working gets well. Great distance pairing out of his. We were at uh, the show floor in AB, which should be you know buzzing like I don't know what, oh. and. And he went way aisles away to do stop-start on it because I was looking through his camera, kind of yelling back until we realized we just phoned each other. And so we phoned each other up so we could just talk about um, whether it was buttoning on and off. Mine works for, for, well, I say worked. It didn't work, but it would work for about one inch, I think. But then, of course, that's been sent back and that's one of the things that being modded. So, you know. Um, That's an incredibly handy gadget for $500 to have a totally remote control camera. I, I don't think I can't think of any other camera that's ever done that in the past. I think the thing about the, I mean, it's awesome for when you put up a crane. Yeah. Um, I don't f- 
find that I've been... Well, I don't know. When do you use it? I mean, I, I just haven't been... There's only two occasions that I've really wanted to use it. Crane work and car work when we've got it on um, the camera outside the car on it. Yep. But I would love the pro version that would let me pull focus or adjust a bit, you know, the one that's meant to be coming sometime. Yeah, I understand, but um, they've never given us an image or any real details on that. So where do you use it? Um, Well, I just like it. um, As I say, I I have only just received it. Okay. But I I, 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 frankly just hand it over to the the camera assistant. And so um, you never have to lose contact with the camera before the system goes, oh, can can I have the camera? And he'll go through and change settings and do things and whatever's required. Um, But now I can keep – and I I work through the camera – uh, that's the way. That's the way I, I prefer, and I won't have. I won't have to give it up. He can do whatever he wants. He's got. He, he's got his little red mode. If he needs to change settings, do things, change real numbers, blah 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 blah. All good. Right. Well, I, I mean, I yeah, I can see that. I yeah, but it's not. You won't be using it every moment. Yeah, I just uh, yeah, because I mean, for me, I didn't like it on the back of the camera when I like a lot of handheld stuff. I didn't mm. like it on the back because I felt like I can knock it off. You know, bump it off. Yeah. Um, so I got used to not using it, and I just put. A, I had a plate, or I have. I have a plate um, from I think wooden camera or somewhere that goes over the back to protect the back. So, with the exception, as I say, of um, car mounts and 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 what have you. That being said, I can see that would be really helpful on crew to you know yeah. be able to set. Yeah, so you know, the work you guys do if you're doing interviews, you can be sitting down talking to someone, and you can just quietly turn the camera on, turn it off. Um, not have to even get up, um, break it, break, uh, would you, break I, the moment. I would, I would so not have the nerve to do that without checking the camera. It does give feedback, though, doesn't it, Red Mode? Yes, yes, it don't does. Trust it. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe <laughs> I just, I, I, you know, time will tell. I guess. I don't know yet. I, as I say, I, I've literally taken delivery of it. But yeah, I, I if it was an imp- super important, yeah. I do hold out a lot of hope for the gyro, though. But then I held out a lot of hope for the i. Uh, eye tech on the camera lens and yeah, that was a strange red themselves seemed to become disinterested in their own lenses was a strange yeah. decision mm. um, um, do you hanker after the larger LCD you know there's this oh, giant the, LCD is it the 9 inch yeah or even larger mm, not really uh, look I'm a viewfinder guy um, um, so no if someone gave it to me, oh, sure, I'd have that. Um, but I, I see the little monitor on, on top of the camera, the touchscreen, literally just a control module. And frankly, with a red remote now, um, I probably wouldn't even have it turned on half the time. I'd just have my viewfinder in until the plus one module turns up. Right. Uh, so, no, it's not really my thing. Um, but look, it might be great for clients and directors and to share, but... I can't see – I need to see it in action. So so just to close out today's app, because it will bring us back to where we started, the the 1K widescreen, 400 frames a second, do you think – I mean, like what is your slow-mo sweet spot? I mean, I would have thought that that's cool to have but not super – like it's not going to be used on every job, 1K. Honestly, you know, 100, 120 – even maybe 150 for people, yeah. you know, for human action is usually really sufficient. Um, uh, it depends what they're doing. If, um, But uh, if they're doing maybe sport, some sort of sport or hitting a cricket ball, I mean, for actual human physical action, um, it's probably enough. If they're actually doing something like um, our archery, 
um, um, 120 wouldn't have been good enough to reveal the arrow action. So when it comes to explosions or mechanical stuff, um, then, you know, you could easily go to 1,000 and and more. I I liked your 2,000 frame a second baseball hit, um, but I've got to say at 2,000, I'm struggling for the jobs that require it. Like, I think it's great to have it up your sleeve. Um, but I, I would agree with you. I think that there's enormous benefit of being able to overcrank to like 90 and 120, 150, yep. that kind of number. Mm-hmm. And then it gets into specialist territory and it kind of gets interesting again. <laughs> again, the diminishing to, returns. Yeah. Um, I do think there's a bit of a dip there though where it's kind of it's like... It's a weird thing too. I love that slow motion stuff. I'm absolutely... I'm riveted by it. Um, but there's only... You know, when it really comes down, there's only so many, you know, fluids look fantastic. Yeah. Um, obviously, explosion, flame, um, Human body destruction. doing muscle action like a gymnast. But then again, you don't probably need 2,000 on that. No. Like what we did on your 2,000 with the baseball player is we just ramped it. Like everything was just ramped. And we went super slow-mo for the ball hit to see the ball compressing on the bat and the dust coming off it and then ramped it again. Because quite frankly, who wants to watch a shot that lasts 48 seconds? I mean, it's a hell of a long time for just one hit. Look, it, it's 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 a feature in a camera that's a plus, um, um, and you, it's, it, it's never bad to be able to do more. But it's, you certainly can't imagine you'd be turning that on, even for wildlife and that sort of work. I mean, it's too slow. Do you switch on your HDRX much? I have used it. I have been a little disappointed with it because not that it doesn't work, but it is motion photography, and people are always moving. <laughs> and if it's a you know landscape shot, not a problem. But I just find the shots that I've done when people have moved quickly, the um, the fact that the 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 X track um, is taken after they're not taken at the same time. It's mm. um, the the high speed shutter shot yeah. um, is taken after the main shot. I think it's mathematically taken first, but whatever, yeah. Uh, it's a first, is it? They're, they're well, they're, 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 it, it inevitably, first or last, yeah. um, they're, they're chronologically out of position. Sure. Um, so when, having said that, I, I'm on the shots that I've used it on. Um, maybe no one else has noticed that kind of ghosting on the highlights. Um, but um, it's something that I'm happy to use, but I I just don't think you could rely – nothing – it would be way better – to have a dragon sensor. Which I was going to say, because that leads me to the thing, because Jason and I were discussing this, like the, the I think it's $5,000 for a dragon sensor. Is it worth it? And I was like, well, yes, on our Epic and no on our Scarlet was my kind of position. because yeah, I'll, I'll do it in a heartbeat. Yeah, because extra latitude is... Two, two stops is worth that's it. That's a ginormous yeah. improvement. Yeah. All right, Tom, thank you so much for sitting in for uh, Jason Wingrove. We always enjoy talking to you and it's no, terrific thank you. having I, you. I, I was a little surprised because I did walk in to do something else <laughs> and, and I, now I'm sitting in the pod. <laughs> in, in our men in black chairs. Well, it's true, but I thought as you were here and we've been doing so much work together in these last few weeks that it would be great to get your perspective on things as I'm sure everyone would agree is listening. I want to thank you guys so much for listening to us uh, on the show. Of course, um, we, uh, we may or may not have show notes this week um, depending on whether I get around to doing them because Jason normally doesn't. Um, but uh, we'll, of course, be back uh, in about a fortnight. Um, you might want to check out some of our other things happening over at FX Guy. There's some really good uh, stories at the moment. Of course, a lot of the summer blockbusters are hitting. Have you seen Avengers, Tom? I have, yes. Did you like it? I did. I enjoyed it. Um, the, the VFX are absolutely seamless. Um, 
I mean, it's a popcorn movie, but... Um, See it in mono a, or in stereo? I saw it in stereo, which, considering um, it was dimensionalised, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Um, it was surprisingly good for a dimensionalised film. I, 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 if I knew it beforehand it was dimensionalised, I wouldn't have seen it in 3D. Um, that's how I feel about dimensionalising. But i got to say, it, you know, um, it wasn't the best 3D, but it, wasn't, it, it was not rubbish. Yes, well, there's actually a story about the dimensionalization over at uh, FX Guide. Um, it's an out-of-stereo story, and it's interesting talking to those guys about how Marvel wanted it dimensionalized around their characters just to basically focus on their characters mm. as opposed to some of the other stuff. But uh, that same story, out-of-stereo conversion, covers uh, Titanic, Star Wars, and John Carter, all yeah. dimensionalized. Can I ask, when they dimensionalize a film like that, because obviously so much of it is actually CGI-generated, um, I assume the whole of New York is a CGI, would that be real 3D? Okay, I'm glad you asked that question because Jace doesn't normally ask me geeky, technical, boring questions that, um, <laughs> that I can really geek out on. There are four ways that Stereo D dimensionalized that stuff. So one of them is that they did a full conversion from the mono to either left or right or from the middle to out to a left and out to a right. So that's just literally give me a mono plate and I'll convert it to stereo. Mm. Then the second thing they did is they got some stereo renders from houses where they said, look, just give us a full left and right render on that. In the case of what you're talking about, the ILM New York sequence, which is that whole end sequence, that was not the case. It wasn't all done like that. Um, The third thing they did is they got a partial um, stereo uh, as a pre-conversion. Now, this is really interesting. So what they would do there is they'd say, for the head-up display for Tony Stark, where Robert Downey Jr. was acting, they would pre-stereo convert his head and hand the converted head over to, in this case, it was uh, Cantina Creative, who would then do a stereo head-up display for in, sitting in, in front of the space. In real stereo. Yes, so they yep. did real stereo for the graphics. His head is a converted stereo plate. Um, and effectively, that was sort of done, it was like sort of pre-converted, if that makes sense? Yeah. So the, the, the effects house is actually dealing with the stereo as if it had been shot stereo. Yeah. And then the third thing they did is that they would actually get some stereo elements provided to them and the finished mono plate or mono bits. And they'd say, okay, well, this is what it's meant to look like in mono. Here's some extra bits. Like, for example, let's say you had an Iron Man or something, though this is not an this is an example, not an actual. <laughs> um, I'm making this bit up. But let's say you got Iron Man. You said, okay, well, we just have to have Iron Man fly through shot. So I'll just bother rendering a second eye for you and give you that. Yeah. And then if you could just make it, look like the when you've converted the background and just take my stereo and comp it in, that would be awesome. Um, but I can tell you this is what my final looked like in mono. And so the shot was kind of redone effectively uh, by the guys at Stereo D. So, um, yeah, it was it was quite a interesting. It was like 2,200 effect shots alone. Yeah. And also um, just from a workflow point of view, which is kind of interesting because we've rat-holed even though we're meant to have been finished. Um, that whole job was, as you know, shot on the Alexa. So they had four Alexas on set, apart from the high-speed stuff where they were shooting on uh, Ariflex on uh, 435s because they didn't have high-speed options in the Alexa and they wanted to get some high-speed stuff out. They even had some 5D Mark II in there, apparently. Um, but they shot it all 185, and it was all recorded, the Alexa stuff, that is, on the uh, the Codex box with um, uh, CDLs or, or LUTs, as we were discussing, um, and the Ari RAW format um, with the LUTs that we were talking about earlier, though not the same ones we were talking about earlier. And then um, that all got um, shot back to what is effectively a network of um, companies out of Deluxe because the uh, deal with 
um, the way that it kind of works. Since May 2011, Stereo D is actually owned by Deluxe, so it's part of that group. So they had e-film grading in Hollywood, Stereo D doing conversion up in Burbank, and all of the production over in uh, Santa Monica. And it's all on a 10-gig kind of setup, and they had virtual grading. So you would actually be sitting in a room, looking at it on a screen, talking to the grader, and the voice coming from the back of the room was actually coming out of a speaker because they were actually grading on the other side of Los Angeles in real time. It just felt like you're in the same room because the lights were out. They spent some real money. Well, it's Avengers, for God's sake. Mm. Of course they spent real money. They spent more money than they would... I mean, they would be thinking of ways to spend more money. Yeah. Um, but yes, it was... Uh, but it was this sort of like network because you've got um, such a strong role out of Deluxe now. Yeah. You've got like onset stuff to literally DVDs. And... Um, it's in a hell of a job just managing the logistics of that. Cause think about it from the DOP's point of view. You've got the grade that you're going to be taking through to the mono. There's a separate grade for stereo. Different shots are coming in. You've got very complicated issues with making these digital characters sit in. You've got tons of facilities working on the shots. And it's also just the, the, the matching. Uh, I mean, should, in, a, in the past where people have farmed out VFX shots to lots of different places, you know, especially with the grading, they've often all come back with different looks and slightly, you know, not cutting together. Um, but I've got to say the Avengers, I didn't see any of that. Yeah, Steve Scott was the uh, colorist who I just have heaps of time for. I think he's freaking brilliant. Um, and, uh, yeah, so he did uh, he did all of that. Busy man. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm sure he had a team uh, with him. And you know, it's not like he hasn't done tons of big stuff before. Um but you're right, the, it was the same thing about farming stuff out to facilities because you had ILM and Weta basically doing the heavy lifting. ILM did the New York that you were talking about before. ILM um, did most of the Hulk um, though, and most of the Iron Man, though some of the Iron Man was done by Weta in, um, uh, you know, that forest scene? When yes, yeah, fighting yeah, Thor. Yeah, so they even took over Iron Man for that bit. And then Island, I think, took most of the heli carrier. They had Scanline working with them. But um, in Sydney, you had Fuel doing stuff, like at Tony Stark's apartment. You had uh, Creative Cantina, I mentioned before, Luma Pictures, um, just tons of companies. The end titles, which I thought were awesome. Do you remember the end titles? It was like, did you hang around for those? I think so. They had these like super little close-up shots of like the shield and like, okay, yes, yes. shallow depth of field mm. down bits of armor and stuff. Did you hang around for the very, very end for the shot of them eating? No. No. It wouldn't have been the last shot, no. You know, the surprise shot that happens after you think it's over. Oh, damn. <laughs> well, I won't give that away then. Anyway, yeah, so all of that, both the stereo thing, which is in our stereo story, and our story on the roll call for Avengers, which has had phenomenal downloads and reads. Um, as I'm looking at it now, it has 3,500 likes on Facebook alone. But, yeah, tens of thousands of people have been reading that. Um, it was all over at FX Guide, so check that out Tom again I'm going to really have to go because I think my battery is going to die on my uh, recording device but thank you so much I really appreciate it it's been awesome okay pleasure thank you see you guys thanks for listening send your questions or comments to rc at fxguide.com copyright 2011 fx guide llc